1: Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. People make major mistakes when they analyze moral arguments. And we're going to try and clear them up here today. Last week, we started to clear them up, and we're going to complete the task today. At least that's our intent anyway. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, it might behoove you to go back and listen to it, because we started talking about, after I talked a little bit about the Beto O'Rourke nonsense about uh, taking tax-exempt status away from churches, um, we started talking about a letter I got from a retired attorney who took issue with the moral argument, and I was basically critiquing his critique of the moral argument, a paragraph by paragraph. And I ended talking about the fact that atheists can't just say they lack a belief in God. In fact, we talked about this two weeks ago on the entire program. Saying you lack a belief that a particular suspect is not the murderer tells you nothing about who the true murderer is. If you're a detective just saying, I lack a belief your guy is the suspect – That's not helpful, okay? Well, it might be helpful, but you're not coming forth with the real murderer, and that's what a good detective does. That's what anybody who's debating these issues in the public square needs to come forth with. Explain why reality is the way it is. Just saying that your guy isn't the true guy tells you nothing about what needs to be explained. Every thinking person needs to explain why reality is the way it is. We all need to have causes for Why there is a universe at all? Why is it fine-tuned? Why life has messages billions of letters long and has remarkably engineered machinery that couldn't have evolved in a step-by-step process? Everybody needs to explain why natural laws exist in the first place and why they are so consistent and precise. Everybody needs to explain why objective moral obligations exist. How can you have obligations unless there's a person issuing these obligations? You don't have obligations to rocks, you don't have obligations to materials. Everybody needs to explain why the laws of logic and the laws of math exist, and why our brains can discover truth about the real world. Why the world can be so, uh, or, can, or can be explained so precisely in the language of math. In fact, many years ago, Eugene Wigner wrote a paper called "The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics." Why can our brains? Describe the universe in the language of math so precisely. And why can we understand this? He had no answer. It seems to make sense, however, if there's a being who set up the universe, who is orderly and has imposed his orderly mind on the universe and on our minds. So we can ascertain truths about both. We can ascertain truths about the world and about the ultimate mind, God. That makes sense. And a little bit later, I'll show you why as C.S. Lewis put this so brilliantly that eighth, you can't have reasons for atheism. And I'll explain why uh, through this C.S. Lewis quote in a little bit. Let me point out that everybody needs to explain why human beings have consciousness and free will. Why Old Testament prophets writing independently in different time periods could foretell the future hundreds of years in advance. Why an itinerant preacher in a small part of the Roman Empire who never wrote a book, never held office, never led an army, never traveled more than 200 miles from where he grew up. Why would he be deemed by Jewish believers in Yahweh to have risen from the dead in the very city where his tomb was known? And why would this group of scared, scattered, skeptical disciples go to their deaths claiming that all this was true? Even, even though they had no motive to say so. In fact, they got, they got none of the three classic motivators. They didn't get chicks because of this. In other words, they didn't get sex. They didn't get money. They didn't get power. They got exactly the opposite. They got kicked out of the synagogue. They got beaten, tortured, and killed for saying so. Anyone who claims to be seeking the truth can't just say, I lack a belief God, God is the cause of all these things. They need to provide evidence for some other cause or causes to explain why those, the way they are. So now they may falsely claim there's no evidence for God, but what are they presuming when they say that? When they say there's no evidence for God, what are they presuming? They are presuming, presuming that this is a world where evidence leads you to truth. Well, you might stop and say, why is that the case? Why? Why does evidence lead us to truth? Why is this a world where there is evidence, reliable cause and effect, and uh, our brains, our minds can understand that and discover the truth? That needs an explanation. Why is this a rational world where cause and effect occurs? And why can our brains be rational such that we can detect cause and effect? Why can we detect and follow the evidence where it leads? That seems to be best explained by a mind. Now, my friend Jeff Myers, who runs Summit Ministries, summit.org, by the way, you need to, you got anybody between the ages of 16 and 22, you need to send them to Summit next summer. I'll be there. Many other apologists and theologians and philosophers will be there two weeks, Manitou Springs, Colorado, beautiful place. They may have uh, other locations too, but that's my favorite place. You need to go to summit.org and sign people up right now because you will learn an amazing amount of apologetics theology and philosophy in summit in two weeks and you'll have a lot of fun too so this these are this is for people age 16 to 22 anyway last time i was there back in august when i was speaking i sat in on a presentation my friend jeff myers gave he is the president there and he put up a quote that i had never seen by c.s lewis uh and it's brilliant i think it was actually i have to find the actual source jeff has it I've, i've got to look it up and uh I'll maybe after the break, let you know where it's from, but listen to what Lewis said. And, and this, this sounds like him writing in, I want to say the problem of pain, but I don't think it was there, but listen to this quote. He says this, and by the way, I've tried to say this myself. I just can't say it as well as C.S. Lewis. Here's what he said. Suppose there were no intelligence behind the universe. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God, unquote. C.S. Lewis, he's exactly right. He's exactly right. In fact, it wasn't just he who said that, but Haldane said that, who was an evolutionist. He put it this way. He said, if my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true. And hence, I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. Exactly. I've been trying to communicate this over and over again, ever ever since writing Stealing from God, where I go into quite depth on this, that the atheists arguments are stealing from God to say he doesn't exist. Because how do you explain reason if we're just molecular machines, if we're just moist robots, you can't reason is best explained by God. If your brain was not designed, why do you trust it? In fact, John Lennox has famously said this. He'll ask his scientist friends, How do you do science? And they'll start talking about, you know, equipment. And he'll go, no, 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 I don't talk. I I don't mean science in the lab. I mean, science up here. He points to his head and they'll say, oh, you mean with my mind? They start to say mind and then they catch themselves. Oh, you mean my brain? Yeah. Yeah, my brain. Yeah, that's 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 what I mean. Lennox will say, how do you how do you do science with your brain? In fact, let me ask you this question. Where did your brain come from? And the atheist scientist will say, well, my brain was the product of an unintelligent, unguided process that didn't have any end in mind. And Lennox will say, and you trust it? Exactly. Why would you trust such a device? If a computer could be put together by unintelligent forces, would you trust anything it said? Of course not. Now, of course, a computer can't be put together by unintelligent forces, but if it was, you wouldn't trust it. So why do you trust your mind? This is what Lewis is saying. This is what Haldane is saying. This is what I try and say in the book Stealing from God. There are no good arguments for atheism because atheism makes it impossible to have arguments. You're a moist robot. You're no different than a Coke can fizzy. I'm Frank Turek, and hopefully I'm not just a Coke can fizzy. We'll talk more right after the break. Don't go away. We're back in into- Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. You're back. Listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, org. And don't forget to download our app, two words in the app store, Cross-Examined. And if you do, you'll get this podcast. You'll get uh, the TV show streaming live. You get a quick answer section, a whole bunch of other fun stuff. We're talking about a or responding to, I should say, a letter that a retired attorney sent me. I'm about to read the second paragraph. You know, It took me a whole show to get through the first paragraph and explain why it was wrong. Here's here's the second paragraph of this gentleman's letter. It's clear that what is considered moral has varied widely throughout human history. A notable example would be child sacrifice. For many societies, this was not only moral, but it was the very way to please their god or gods. It was their opinion that this was their god, or, or this was what their God or gods desired. It seems to me that a non believer would take the same view of a believer's claims regarding what his God desires. Child sacrifice is an extreme example, but certainly many cultures throughout history have regarded as moral conduct that we enlightened folks would now condemn. Okay, first point we would condemn child sacrifice by what standard? Why is child sacrifice wrong? If you're going to say it's just your opinion, if enlightened folks today are going to say it's just our opinion, then it's not really a moral wrong. It's just an opinion. And yet, atheists today will say there is no right or wrong. And so how can you condemn child sacrifice? You can't. Now, what this gentleman says is that... What's considered moral has varied widely throughout human history. First of all, that's not true, actually. If you look at C.S. Lewis's book, The uh, Abolition of Man, he points out that there's been a consistent uh, agreement across cultures about what's moral and what isn't. Yeah, there are some differences on the edges, but centrally, they've agreed on the major precepts. And. Also, the second response to this paragraph is this. The moral argument does not require universal agreement among human beings to be valid. Any more than certain scientific arguments require universal agreement to be valid. If just one moral obligation or value exists, regardless of human opinion, then God exists. In other words, you don't have to agree on everything to say there's a moral law. You don't have to agree on everything to say that God exists. There just has to be one thing. That is really morally wrong, and every single person knows certain things that are really morally wrong. Whether it's torturing babies for fun, whether it's murdering innocent people, whether it's rape, whatever it is, if there's one thing morally wrong, then God exists. In fact, uh, William Lane Craig gives a, a thought experiment. He says, suppose the Nazis had won World War II, and they... Took over the world and they brainwashed everybody to believe that killing gypsies, Jews, homosexuals, and Jehovah's Witnesses was a good thing. Would that make it a good thing? Because everyone believed it was a good thing. No, obviously not. They wouldn't, it wouldn't be a good thing just because everyone was brainwashed to believe it. While everybody is born with certain faculties that allow them to understand right and wrong their mind. They're born with their mind. And once they're old enough to know what murder is, they're old enough to know that murder is wrong. While we're all born that way, we can be, uh, uh, well, let me put it another way. Jay Buczyzewski wrote the famous book, um, uh, so famous, I can't remember the name of it. What We Can't Not Know. That's it. What We Can't Not Know teaches down at UT Austin. Says there are certain things we can't not know. We can't not know that murder is wrong. Everybody knows it. It's written on your heart. And uh, now your baloney meter, that's what he calls your conscience, can be knocked out of whack. It can be knocked out of calibration by bad education or propaganda or those kind of things. But you're born with the faculties that allow you to know as soon as you're old enough to know what murder is and as soon as you're old enough to know what wrong is, you know that murder's wrong. And the Nazis we sacrificing Jews and these other minorities so they could build the super race. Were they right or were they wrong? If you're saying there's no standard beyond humanity, you can't judge the Nazis. That's just their culture. Again, the issue here is not epistemology, but ontology. How do you ground goodness so that when you see the Nazis, you know that they don't meet the standard of goodness How do you ground it if you're an atheist? You can't. So the question is not what method we should use to discover what is moral. We can argue over that. But what actually makes something moral? Why does the moral law exist at all? And why does it have authority uh, over us? Now, uh, Sam Harris wrote the book, The Moral Landscape. And I respond to Sam Harris in the book, Stealing from God. Sam Harris is an atheist, and he thinks there are objective right and wrongs to his credit, but he has no way to ground it. In fact, here's what I write about that. Uh, I I say, how how do you ground right and wrong? And I say this, the moral landscape gives us no answer. It's a nearly 300 page long example of the most common mistake made by those who think objective morality can exist without God. Harris seems to think because we can know objective morality, which is epistemology, that explains why objective morality exists in the first place. That's ontology. It doesn't. You may come to know about objective morality in many different ways, from parents, from teachers, from society, from your conscience. Harris talks about brain states, whatever. And you can know it while denying God exists. But that's like saying you can know what a book says while denying there's an author. Of course, you could do that, but there would be no book to know unless there was an author. In other words, atheists can know objective morality while denying God exists, but there would be no objective morality unless God exists. You know, I had a debate with uh, Michael Shermer, which you can see on our website, our YouTube channel. And if you haven't signed up for the YouTube channel, you ought to. We've got almost 140,000 subscribers now. And once a week, we send you an email with a new Q&A video. Anyway, you can go back to, I want to say this was April 2015. You can watch the entire debate I had with uh, Michael Shermer. And the debate was, what best grounds morality, God or science? And of course, Shermer tried to say science. Well, here's the response to that. Science might be able to tell you if an action may hurt someone, like, you know, if giving cyanide will kill a man, but science can't tell you whether or not you ought to hurt someone. Who said it's wrong to harm people? Michael Shermer? Is he the authority? Is his nature good? How about Sam Harris? Does he have the authority over the rest of humanity? Is, is his nature the standard of good? To get his system to work, whether it's, They must smuggle in what actually is a moral standard. And in Harris's view, the moral standard is well-being. Well, generally, we agree. When you're you're searching for well-being, if you do something that enhances the well-being of somebody, that's probably a good thing. It might not always work. That test might not always work, but it's probably a good thing. And it's good to seek the well-being of others. But why should we do so is the question. In fact, uh, William Lane Craig pointed out in his debate with Harris that well-being is not a fail-safe criterion of what's right. And I think Craig gave the example of a sociopath who decides to murder people because it enhances his well-being. Well, why would that be wrong if it enhances his well-being? You're saying, well, it's not enhancing the well-being of others. Well, who's to say it's wrong to take away their well-being? That's the very question that you have to answer. Everyone has to answer it. And unless God exists, you can't say that it's wrong to take the life of another person, especially if it enhances your well-being. Now, but even if this was a good criterion, what objective, unchanging moral authority establishes it as right? It can't be Sam Harris or any other finite changing person. Only an unchanging, good, righteous, just, authoritative being. Who can prescribe and enforce objective morality here and beyond the grave as an adequate standard. Only God can ground justice and ensure justice is completely done. That's all from stealing from God, if you want to go further. Now, um, Sam Harris, to sum this up, I I think we need a little summary here. (laughs) Sam Harris tries to say that objective morality exists without God. But again, he addresses the wrong issue he's 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 addressing epistemology not ontology harris tries to steal an objective moral standard from god to get his atheistic system off the ground and it's the same for those who appeal to evolution evolution doesn't evolution doesn't prescribe how you ought to behave it just describes how people behave or how, how biology works if it's true at all and of course we have a lot of trouble with the theory of macroevolution but even if it's true it it's not a prescriptive Process. It's a descriptive process. Now, one of the most profound things said on this debate was said by atheist Louise Antony. She was an atheist debating William Lane Craig. And here's what she said, quote, any argument for moral skepticism or atheism, we could say, will be based upon premises which are less obvious than the existence of objective moral values themselves, unquote. In other words, objective moral rights are self-evident, but atheism is not. You already know better than anything else that any argument you could give for atheism, that say, torturing babies for fun is wrong. If you want to say that atheism is true, you have to basically decide that your strongest moral intuition is wrong, for atheism to be true. You have to say torturing babies for fun isn't wrong. In order to say that atheism is true. Why would you say that? I had a debate with Michael. uh, Not Michael. Shermer. uh, Yeah. Had. But uh, David Silverman, who used to be the president of the American atheists. And we went back and forth over this one issue, the Holocaust. I said. David, if God does not exist, the Holocaust was not really wrong. And after about a 10 minute or actually about a five minute exchange on this, he finally admitted. He said, you know, you're right. The Holocaust isn't objectively wrong. And I said to him, David. If your worldview, atheism, requires you to believe that the Holocaust was not objectively morally wrong, you have the wrong worldview. Don't change what you already know is true, that it was wrong. Change your explanation, your worldview. But he didn't want to do that. So what can I say? I can just say, look, here's the evidence. Why would you reject what you know to be true in order to accept atheism, which is far less evidenced than the moral intuition you already have that torturing babies for fun is wrong, that the Holocaust is wrong? So, while the moral argument doesn't require agreement, there actually is agreement on core issues, And uh, in fact, when when we say the moral law exists, we mean that all people are impressed with a fundamental sense of right and wrong. Everyone knows, for example, that love is superior to hate and courage is better than cowardice. And this is why Jay Budziszewski writes this. He, He writes, everyone knows certain principles. There is no land where murder is virtue and gratitude is vice. Everybody knows this. And we're going to talk more about it after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Website, crossexamine.org. Crossexamine with a D on the end of it. Sign up for our YouTube channel, crossexamine.org, and our Facebook page as well. We stream all our live events. You can see them there back in two minutes.
0: If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also... Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or Cross-Examined in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. As you know, C.S. Lewis has written so profoundly
1: On the topic of objective morality in his book, Mere Christianity, that you have to quote Lewis when you're talking about this issue. So let me quote Lewis. Here's what he said. He said, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle or where a man felt proud of double crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five, unquote. In other words, yes, despite the fact that the moral argument does not require universal agreement on moral issues, there is pretty much universal agreement on some moral issues, like what I, like what Lewis just said. In other words, everyone knows there are some objective moral obligations. It's true. And a moral obligation is something that's binding on all people at all times and all places. Everybody knows there are certain things. In fact, this is why... Um, Budziszewski calls it, what we can't not know. Now, this does not mean that every moral issue has easily recognizable answers or that some people don't deny that objective morality exists. Look, there are difficult problems in morality, and some people will suppress and deny the moral law. They'll, They'll do it every day. It simply means that there are some basic principles of right and wrong that everyone knows, whether they will admit them or not. You can't not know, for example, that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings for no reason. You can't not know that. Now, some people will deny it. They'll commit murder anyway. But deep in their hearts, they know that murder's wrong. Even serial killers know murder's wrong. They just not, might, feel, they might not feel remorse. If they're sociopaths, they, they don't feel guilt. They don't feel remorse. But intellectually, they know it's wrong. And it's true everywhere. Everyone knows murder's wrong. Whether you live in America, India, Zimbabwe, wherever, you know it's wrong. Now, this, we're going through a letter, for those of you just tuning in, written by a retired attorney, challenging the moral argument, even though he claims to be a believer. Here's another paragraph he wrote. When a society enacts a law and imposes penalties for violating it, that law becomes an objective standard. Okay, well, actually, no, it's not an objective standard. This is me talking now. Not an objective standard. It's just a man-made standard. Now, it may... Depending on the law, it may actually be objectively a good standard, but just because you make a law doesn't mean you're you're passing a good law. Anyway, he goes on to say, yet that law is nothing more than the opinion of those who enacted it, that whatever conduct it proscribes should be punished. No defendant is ever going to successfully argue in court that he doesn't share the opinion of the lawmakers. Okay, response. It may be the opinion of the lawmakers, but that opinion may agree with God's good nature. When lawmakers enact laws against murder, they are agreeing with God's nature. And here's what we need to realize, that subjective people, and we all are subjective people, we're all subjects, we can know objective facts. Of course, to deny that would be self-defeating. If you were to say, as some postmodernists will say, you can't know objective facts or there are no objective facts. You would ask, well, is that an objective fact? And how do you, is that an objective fact? And how do you know it? See, they're uttering what they think are objective facts to say, you can't know objective facts. To put this another way, despite the fact that you are a fallible subject, sometimes your opinions and intuitions are correct about objective facts. If you have the opinion that two plus two equals four and that torturing babies for fun is wrong. You're, you're right about that. You're correct. It's not just your opinion. What you believe is actually true. Now, I mentioned that when lawmakers enact laws against murder, they're agreeing with God's good nature. Now, when lawmakers or courts say impose laws mandating, say, same-sex marriage, they are disagreeing with God's good nature and design. In that case, they're not really legislating morality, but immorality. Now, I have an entire book on this. I can't go into great detail. But let me just mention four Ps, because this is an easy way to remember this topic. The four Ps. Whenever you're talking about this issue of marriage, you have to answer four questions, or at least look at the four Ps. What's the first P? What's the purpose of marriage? Why is the government involved in marriage to begin with? The reason the government's involved in marriage to begin with is not just because it's some kind of religious ceremony, although it might be, it's because marriage perpetuates and stabilizes society. When a man and a woman come together, they at least have the have the capacity to have children, and they can bring children up in that family, and they can therefore perpetuate and stabilize society. That's the first P. The other three Ps are what any country or any lawmaking group can do about any particular behavior. They can prohibit a behavior. They can permit a behavior or they can promote a behavior. Prohibit, permit, or promote. Those are the three Ps. Now, for most of our history, the states prohibited homosexual behavior because they knew not only was it against the scriptures, but it was against natural law. And it, uh, had detriments, health detriments to those who were involved in it. Um, in 19, no, no, 2003, the Supreme Court overturned laws against sodomy in a decision called Lawrence versus Texas, where they reversed their 1986 decision, Bowers versus Hartwick. And they said the state laws against sodomy are null and void now. It violated some part of the Constitution, they said. Even though the Constitution hadn't changed, they decided it had, cha- it had somehow violated the Constitution. Okay, so the laws against sodomy went away, the states that still had them, in 2003. So now the states are permitting homosexual behavior. But when you put a law that sanctions same sex marriage, now you've gone from permitting the behavior to promoting the behavior. So you've gone in short order from prohibit through permit to promote. Now, the question is, why should you promote relationships between people of the same sex? If the purpose of marriage is to perpetuate and stabilize society, how does that do that? And without going into all the details, because we don't have time in this broadcast, but the biggest problem with making marriage or, or basically putting a provision in for same-sex marriage is that now you're making marriage genderless. There's really, not, there's really not natural marriage and same-sex marriage. Now there's just genderless marriage. In other words, marriage is just about the romantic desires of adults. It has nothing to do with children. And if there's not an institution devoted to children, if it's not marriage, what is it? Our future is dependent on bringing up good children. And if we're going to say that marriage is just whatever adults want it to be, and has really no bearing on children, or or it's not designed for children, then we're in big trouble, friends. Now, this isn't going to happen overnight. This is a long-term thing. In fact, a much bigger problem than same-sex marriage to our society, and I've said this so much before, is not really, it's not same-sex marriage. It's no-fault divorce. That really created the idea in people's minds that marriage was just about the romantic desires of adults. And once you decided, that you no longer were in love with the other person, whatever that meant. You could just walk away. No fault. That's a disaster. And that's that basically led to same-sex marriage because people are saying, well, look, you know, if uh, if marriage is just about romance, why don't we just let people who are the same sex have romance and we'll just sanction it? We'll just promote it. So there's so much going wrong with our society and the religion of sex. This is just one of the things that's gone wrong. And I lay it at the foot of the church. Because the church hasn't been the church for the past hundred years. You want to know our, why our country's in trouble? You can blame the church. The church is at fault here. In fact, I wrote a column 10 years ago. Country MS, blame the church. It's still valid today, I think. <laughs> We're the problem. We haven't been salt and light. Now, if you've disagreed with anything I've said with regard to same-sex marriage, I got to ask you a question. By what standard are you saying I'm wrong about that? In order to say I'm wrong, you have to know what's Right. If there's no God, there's no standard. If there's no design, there's no right and wrong when it comes to marriage or, you know, between a man and a woman or man and a man, or or why even, why even restrict it to two? If it's all about love, you can love a whole bunch of people, can't you? No, you've got to have standards. And if it's just your opinion, then that's not really a standard. That's just an opinion. (sighs) We're covering a lot of ground here, friends. Let me move on to this gentleman's next paragraph. Again, this is written by a retired attorney, and he's challenging the moral argument. He says, if a nonbeliever says Hitler's attempt to eradicate the Jews was immoral, this isn't simply his opinion. Now, I'm going to stop right here and say, if a non-believer, it's not just his opinion. Well, it may be. So that it's not just his opinion if God exists, but if God doesn't exist, it is just his opinion. By what standard are you going to say that Hitler was wrong? When we went to Nuremberg and convicted the Nazi soldiers, they said we were just obeying our government. And we said, you have an obligation to disobey moral, immoral laws or immoral orders from your government because there's a standard beyond your government called the moral law, called nature's law, called international law. And that's God's nature. And you did not follow that. Without that standard, you can't say Hitler was wrong. Anyway, this gentleman goes on to say this. The vast majority of living people regard genocide as immoral. The consensus opinion of the majority of living people is the objective standard. Often, this same opinion is embodied in similar laws around the world. Perhaps this opinion has its origins deep in evolutionary history, as a non-believer would probably argue. In any event, it seems to me that it is very difficult to deny that evolutionary wiring has led to a consensus opinion is any less of an objective standard than degrees of deity. The non-believer regards as non-existence exists. Okay. Let me stop right here. Okay. The consensus opinion. Are you simply saying that because people have a consensus opinion that that makes it right? If that's the case, there was at least a plurality, if not a majority of people in Nazi Germany that believed the way they believed. Did that make it right? That's not objective. You don't get to objective standard by a majority vote. I mean, a majority may vote and, and their vote may line up with the pre-existing objective standard, but just because they vote on it doesn't make it objective, I mean, you could, you could vote on a lot of different things and get the wrong answer. You could vote on same-sex marriage and say it's just as good as natural marriage. Well, it's, not, it's not the same. There are different behaviors that yield different results. You could vote that allowing abortions is a good thing. Well, it's not a good thing. There's an unborn child in there, and you're taking the life of that unborn child. You can vote it's perfectly legal to kill Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and Jehovah's Witnesses, but that doesn't make it right. And he went on to talk about evolutionary wiring. My question would be, what do you mean by evolutionary wiring? I mean, if it were true that the reason we believe in certain, certain things are moral and other things are immoral is because of evolution, then they're not really moral obligations. That just explains why we think that. They're just accidents of an evolutionary process. That's not objective at all. That's just a result of a descriptive process that has no prescriptions coming from it. You have no moral obligation to a mutating genetic code. And we'll unpack this further after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with Frank Turek. Back in two. Ladies and gentlemen... I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation? 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. I found the source for that fabulous C.S. Lewis quote. Let me read the quote again, and then I'll give you the source. Here's what Lewis said. Suppose there were no intelligence behind the universe. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism, and therefore we have no reason to be an atheist. Or anything else, unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought, so I can never use thought to disbelieve in God, unquote. That's C.S. Lewis, and it actually comes from a book called Broadcast Talks, and it's on page 37 to 38. This goes all the way back to 1944. You know, most of what Lewis said on the radio is in a book called Mere Christianity. Those were all broadcast talks that Lewis gave over the BBC during the war, and he turned it into a book, so, if you can find a book called Broadcast talks, talks, you can get that great quote from C.S. Lewis, pointing out that you can't give reasons for atheism, because if you do, you don't have a source, you have no reason to believe that your mind is telling you the truth if atheism is true. So, anyway, let's go back to where we were. This gentleman uh, who is writing me was talking about evolutionary wiring. Now, If true, if evolution somehow gave you your thoughts, this would only explain how you came to believe in certain moral obligations, but it wouldn't mean that those are real moral obligations. This, again, would only explain epistemology, not ontology. Again, friends, that is the biggest mistake everyone makes. Oh, I know right and wrong. Therefore, I can explain right and wrong. No, knowing something exists is not the same as explaining something exists. I can know there's a car in my driveway right now, but me knowing there's a car in my driveway doesn't explain why that car is there. Somebody built that car. Okay. So the epistemological question is, oh, I can see the car there. The ontological question is who built the car? Same thing is true with morality. You can know that murdering Innocent people is wrong. But the question is, why is that wrong? Why is that moral truth and that moral obligation pressing on us? Where does it come from? My car may have come from Detroit, but the moral argument or moral obligations come from God's nature. So... Just to say that you have evolutionary wiring, that would only explain why you think you should do good. It wouldn't explain why good exists or why we are obligated to do good. And I might add, how does a mutating genetic code know what is good or have any authority to lay obligations on you? It doesn't. Here's here's even the bigger problem. Think about this. If evolutionary wiring gives you your moral thoughts, then it gives you all of your thoughts. Which means you shouldn't believe anything you think, including any reasons you have for evolution. That's mirroring the same quote that I just quoted from Lewis. Because evolution, which isn't a source of truth, it if it, it, if it exists at all in the sense they believe it exists, this macroevolutionary process, it doesn't give you necessarily truth. It just gives you survival. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. And so... If evolution's given you your moral thoughts, then maybe evolution's given you every thought you have, including the thought that evolution's given you your moral thoughts <laughs> see it's it's a viciously self defeating position to take again to quote Haldane, If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true, and hence, I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. All right. He went on to say this. Homosexuality. Again, this is the gentleman writing me, the retired attorney. Homosexuality seems to me a good example. Attitudes toward homosexuality have varied across cultures and times. If, as seems to be happening, we arrive at a stage where homosexuality is no longer regarded as immoral, according to the consensus opinion of a large majority of living people, will it cease to be immoral? Yes, it seems to me that it will. The consensus opinion of large majority of living people as reflected in appropriate changes in the laws will constitute the objective standard. Okay, we've sort of already covered this. He's saying the same thing again. As I mentioned earlier, if you're going to say that, then you're going to have to say that if if the majority determines moral truth, then how can you condemn the Nazis? They were simply following their majority or a plurality. And by the way, if a majority decided that 2 plus 2 equals 5, would that make it 5? Would that make it objective? No. Our Declaration of Independence doesn't say we're endowed by our majority. It says we're endowed by God. In fact, our Constitution recognizes the rights of everyone, whether they are part of the majority or not. So, in fact, you might say our Bill of Rights largely protects the minority. They're the ones that need to be protected. If you're in the majority, you, ha- you might have the power. If you're not in the majority, you might not have the power. And that's why the Constitution recognizes that people have certain rights even if they're in the minority or the majority. It doesn't matter. So, no, it's not an objective standard. It's got to be grounded in an object. What's the object? People's opinions? No, the object is God's nature. What if, uh, by the way, you might say this, uh, years ago, uh, people obviously, a majority of people obviously thought homosexual behavior was wrong. And today you might say a majority of people think there's nothing wrong with it. Now, if a, if a standard is objective and it's true for all people at all times in all places, how can it change like that? You see, I think what you're confusing is the difference between what we might say is morality, which doesn't change, and sociology, which does change. Morality deals with... What, how people ought to behave. Sociology deals with how people do behave. And that changes all the time. That's actually a fallacy to say that because somebody thinks, or let me put it another way, it's a fallacy to say that objective morality has changed because now people are behaving differently. No, if morality is objective, that means it's grounded in the nature of God and it doesn't change because God doesn't change. Now they, they may behave differently, but morality hasn't changed. In fact, you might say that I'm trying to think of an analogy here with regard to, um, with regard to distance and it's not coming to me off the top of my head, but if, um, if the NFL increased the field to 120 yards between goal lines, the the measurement device hasn't changed just the the use of of the field has changed or the size of the field has changed but a yard is still a yard that doesn't change just because they've changed from using 100-yard fields to 120-yard fields that wouldn't change the yard marker at all or 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 the uh the fact that a yard is thirty-six inches, it would just change the size of the field. And in the same way, God, being the standard, He doesn't change. Even though, if even though our behavior may at some point meet His standard, and at other points may not meet His standard, that may have not been the best example, but it's what I came up I came up with it off the top of my head. And by the way, whenever you put a microphone in somebody's face, your IQ goes down at least twenty points. I just know that's true (laughs) because I'm in front of a microphone a lot and I could I could say things better and I don't. Anyway, but I try. Anyway, here's uh, an, another paragraph that this gentleman writes. Believers who assert that homosexuality is still immoral because their God condemns it will be met with the response: We do not believe in your God is real, or that your opinion as to his degrees constitutes an objective standard. You are no different from a criminal defendant who argues that he doesn't share the opinion of those who enacted the law he is uh, who enacted the law he is ch- he is charged with violating. Okay. Well, yeah, you might be met with that, but that doesn't change the fact that there is an objective standard outside of us, because if God is not real, there is no objective standard. And sure, people and governments can enact immoral laws and force people to comply, but that doesn't mean they are objectively good laws. So... Yes, you can legislate. Legislators can legislate all sorts of different laws. They can either comport with God's nature or conflict with God's nature. They can either be good laws or they can be bad laws. That doesn't change the nature of objective morality. No more than if the speed limit is 70 miles an hour. um, That somebody going 85 miles an hour. Uh, has, he's violated the 70 mile an hour law, but that's his violation doesn't necessarily mean that the standard itself has changed. It hasn't changed. It's still 70 miles an hour. Now, if he gets enough people together and he says, we want the new, in fact, 85 is not fast enough. We want it to be a hundred and we want it to be a hundred on side streets, He's now passed a bad law. Why? Because 100 miles an hour on side streets, people. are okay. And you may not have thought of this before, but think about it. Speed limits imply a moral right to life. That's why we have speed limits to protect people from inadvertently taking innocent life. And uh, you can pass good speed limits, which are reasonable, and you can also pass bad speed limits, which are unreasonable. And just because a group of people get together and say, you know, I think 100 miles an hour on a side street's a good idea. That's a good speed limit. That doesn't make it a good speed limit. That's not an objective. Good, that's not an objectively good standard. Now, we can argue what is a good speed limit back and forth, but we know the extremes. 100 miles an hour is too fast. People are going to get killed. Kids are going to get killed. We can argue whether it's 35 or 30 or 40. Okay, we can argue over that. But we know that 100 is too fast. So, just because you come up with a standard doesn't mean it's a good standard. That's not an objective standard. All right. Well, there's so much more we can say. This is the second show on this topic. We're going to have to have a third show. In fact, we're going to talk about the six major mistakes people make in the next show. I couldn't even get to them here. And we're going to continue with this letter. on Frank Turek. And by the way, if you're anywhere near Seattle, I'm out there today. If you're listening to this on Saturday, uh, Shelton, Washington, check that out on our website, crossexamine.org. Go to the menu uh, events and look up Frank Turek calendar. And I'll see you here next week. Lord willing. God bless.
0: If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.